Father, again, we look to you. We ask you that you give us grace again as we approach uh, this book of the Bible that is just filled with mystery, uh, something that is gonna impact the world in such a dramatic way. And Lord, we're again grateful to you that you've given us uh, direction and wisdom and um, you've told us ahead of time what's going to happen and we really want to be ready. And we want, oh Lord, in, in these last days to be able to impact others for you, be about the gospel, want to be living lives that match up with the reality of a coming uh, return of Christ. And we, uh, again, ask you to give us understanding tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna have this weekend next and then uh, take a break for the summer and then in the fall, uh, this summer, I am hoping to redo a bunch of it so that when we get to the second half of the book, it's, it's a little bit more digestible because I think it's hard to, to jump here and here and here and here, which we're gonna do tonight. Uh, and I think it's helpful to have a few more visuals. Let me get this, this isn't quite uh, right on my face. Uh, so today we're gonna be in Revelation chapter 10. Let me uh, set the timeline again. And, uh, and I wanna mention at the outset that this one, uh, if you're not a person that's into math, this one will be a speck more complicated. I'm just warning you just a little bit ahead of time on this one. Next week uh, is a lot, gonna be a lot easier, but this one's a little bit tougher because I wanna spend some time tonight in the book of Daniel uh, because that's where we are in the book of Revelation, some of the things that Daniel talked about. But my basic timeline, from my understanding, is that um, we're in the church age right now, but the next event that we're waiting for is a seven-year tribulation period that's gonna be kicked off by an agreement with a world leader called the Antichrist, and we're gonna be reading about him tonight. And he's gonna make this agreement with Israel seven years in length, and in the middle of that agreement, he's gonna break the agreement, and there's gonna be intense persecution that's gonna take place against the Jewish people to start with, and then I think it's gonna spread to non-Jew believers in Christ uh, during that period. And I, in my timing, put the rapture coming toward the end of that seven-year period, um, somewhere before the end, maybe about five months before the end of the seven years. Others put it at the beginning of the seven years. And so we'll be gone for all of the difficulties, which again, we hope that's the case but I think we need to prepare for the potential that we might have to go through some of this. And if we do have to go through it, it's gonna be real obvious. Uh, people have this idea that in the last times we won't know it's happening. I believe that believers will clearly understand what's happening and we'll be trying to tell people about it, but they'll think we're fools. And they will not accept it as the word of God, which is happening more and more in our day and age anyway. But tonight I wanted to spend some more time, uh, a little time in Daniel chapter nine because Daniel talks about this world leader that's going to be coming. Daniel is the one that first talks about the fact that he's gonna make an agreement and that he's gonna break it at the three and a half year point and then Jesus refers to that and then John does in the book of Revelation and so I wanna see kind of that timeline. I find it noteworthy that Daniel addresses this uh, because he lived in Babylon. 
And when we get to the second half of the book of Revelation, you'll see that the book of Babylon is prominent. Uh, it's about this restored Babylon, and I believe we're going all the way back to Genesis to the Tower of Babel. And Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, was the first world ruler, and he's a picture of the Antichrist to come in the last days. And so a lot centers around this place called Babylon, and it's part of the reason I think that God even allowed Israel to be transported there and for Daniel to become a wise man in Babylon. Kind of ties some of these things together for the last times. But Daniel was the one who predicted a seven-year period of time where an agreement would be made with Israel, and he's the one again that said in the middle of that seven-year period of time, he would break that agreement and a mass persecution would take place against the Jewish nation. Jesus, again, referred to this in Matthew 24, 15 and 16, and this is what he said. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, this abomination, it's, of course, a reference to a, the person, the Antichrist, and he's going to be a destroyer. He's going to be a, just a massive destroyer on the earth. Um, he's going to cause a, just a lot of havoc uh, in the world. Now, Daniel had been praying in the Old Testament, and he got a visit from Gabriel that began to unfold a little bit about this guy, this Antichrist who is coming. And so I want us to look at that. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, where we read, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away every prophecy, to anoint the most holy place, Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and moat, but in difficult times. Now, here's where we start getting to the math of this thing. Daniel was told by Gabriel that some things were going to happen, and they were going to happen in in these weekly segments of, of seven. And so it's going to be 79 weeks, and then it was going to be, well, 62 is not a, divisible by seven, but when you put them together, it is. Uh, and then the total is 70 weeks. And of course, what did we talk about the number seven? It's, it's the divine number, and it's also the number of completion. Now, what's interesting about this is that Gabriel didn't say in, in 69 weeks. He said uh, in in seven weeks plus 62 weeks. Now, why, why did he do that? Why did he break it up? And then initially he talks about seven weeks. What are we talking about here? Well, I, don't have, I can't develop this exactly, but it's very clear that he's talking about years, not literal weeks, and he's talking about weeks of years. And so when he says that there are seven weeks and 62 weeks, the seven weeks refers to seven sevens or 49 years. Now, again, you see that number seven is factoring in prominently. So he says, well, in 49 years plus, he says, in 62 weeks. And when you put those two together, you get 483 weeks. And you say, well, again, why is he breaking this up? Well, what Daniel was predicting here, what Gabriel was telling Daniel 
most uh, conservative scholars believe he was telling Daniel exactly when the Messiah was going to come. And the seven weeks refers to the 49 years that it took to initially rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And many tie it in with Artaxerxes when Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to go back and start rebuilding the temple and or the, the wall around Jerusalem. And although a lot of the wall was finished in just like 52 days, the completion of it took almost 49 years. And so part of the reason he's breaking it apart is to say something significant is going to happen in 49 years after a declaration or de decree is going to be made. And then there are going to be another 62 weeks where something else is going to happen. Well, what's going to happen? Well, it's the return of the Messiah. And uh, some scholars have put it to the exact week that Jesus either came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey or some put it at the point of his baptism, but the math is there. You can figure it out either way. When Daniel was writing, 49 years passed, and then, or I'm sorry, when Daniel was describing this, he was describing that a king would make a proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem. It would take 49 years to do, then another 62 times seven years for a total of 483 years, and some have calculated that the exact time was in March of the year that Jesus was crucified. It's absolutely remarkable how close it is. Some have put it to the exact day. There is some debate about this. What's interesting about this is that it's, um, it's not the total number of years that were predicted. And so Gabriel said it would be 490 years. He's only accounted for 483 of those years. So seven years is missing, and scholars believe that those seven years will take place in the end times. That's the missing seven years. So one scholar has kind of summarized it in this way. Scholars believe that the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra in 458 B.C. or 457 was the beginning of the 77s, if this view is correct, 400 years after 458 BC would result in the date of AD 26, the time when scholars believe Christ was baptized and began his public ministry as Messiah. Jesus' anointing for ministry came at his baptism, thus he became the anointed one at that time and an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Now again, some put it at the point in which he was baptized and began his ministry. Some put this actually at the point in which Jesus was cut off, as the term goes in Daniel. He would be cut off, and that's of course when he died. So let me read the verses again from Daniel. If you could go back to those ones that I read earlier with that kind of explanation in place. Gabriel told Daniel, 70 weeks, which is 490 years, are decreed about your people and your holy city, one, to bring rebellion to an end, which they've been in rebellion all this time, to put a stop to sin, which happened at the cross, to wipe away iniquity, which happened at the cross, to bring in everlasting righteousness, which is coming still, to seal up vision and prophecy, which means I don't, it won't be needed anymore, and to anoint the most holy place when Jesus Christ returns. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Again, some put it with Ezra, some put it with Nehemiah. Until the Messiah, the prince, 
will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 483 years. It'll be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. By the way, the word moat there can be translated, it can be just the idea of a ditch, which some feel is what actually happened with the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, that they had to actually dig a ditch around it and then fortify the wall in that way, so it's not like a moat with water. But all of this has been fulfilled, but we're missing a week. That's, that's kind of the point, that 483 years brought us to the death of Jesus on the cross, or at least the start of his ministry. But there's a seven years that have not been accounted for, and Daniel then says in, the, in another place that those seven years have to do with a world leader that's going to come, and he's gonna rule for a while. Uh, in Daniel chapter, well, no, okay, so that's fine. So we've accounted for all the, the weeks, and, um, and this seventh week is the one that we're talking about that is referred to in the book of Revelation, and then Jesus also referred to it as well. Um, a scholar by the name of uh, S.R. Miller also notes about this Antichrist guy, if the text is to be taken literally, at this point, this future ruler will come out of the peoples and nations that make up the ancient Roman Empire. Daniel already had divulged in chapter seven that the Antichrist's origin would be from the fourth empire, Rome. And so you've heard it said before that there's gonna be this revived Roman Empire. And of course, Daniel had a vision about that, that the last kingdom would be depicted as this mixture of, of nations, a group of 10, that come out of the Roman Empire. And so that's why we say that the Antichrist will in some way come out of a revived Roman Empire. When we get to the second half of Revelation, you'll see that there's an allusion to this as well because it talks about how this guy is gonna rule among the seven hills, which is a reference to Rome. Uh, but you have to wait for the next time to do that. So uh, with that background in mind, we're gonna jump to Revelation uh, 10 here, but I wanna catch us up to date from the book of uh, Revelation itself. So I mentioned that chapters one through three are the church and the church age, and I believe that's us. And I'm, I believe that the last church in the church age is the church of Laodicea, and it re represents the church of, the modern church of today. A church that's considered to be lukewarm, that has a reputation of being something when it's really nothing. And then the next two chapters, chapter four and five, we have this scene in heaven that's involving Jesus and God, and it's setting up what's about to unfold. And so that's gonna be the thing that's gonna kick off the rest of the book of Revelation. Then in the chapters that follow, we read about seals, trumpets, and bowls. And this is where Revelation gets kind of confusing with people. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. The seals represent a scroll that is unfolded one seal at a time, and they represent what life is gonna be like on this world either just before Jesus comes back or at least during that time, and I believe it's starting now. One thing after another, you've got seven seals. The first six include a variety of things that Jesus called birth pains. And of course, we've talked before about the fact that birth pains are something that as you get closer to the birth of the child, they get closer together and they get stronger, a bigger deal. Now, I think you know what we're experiencing here with the norovirus and some of these other things, uh, or you know, pestilences and things like that, we're gonna see more of that. I think, because that's part of what these seals were about, the judgments that are to come. 
The seals specifically in the book of Revelation included false prophets and likely the Antichrist, wars, pestilence, famine, death, and some other things. And this is something that I think all Christians are gonna go through. And that's the first six seals. The seventh seal has within it all the trumpets. The trumpet judgments are all fit into that seventh seal. And so when you get to the seventh seal, you're coming to the place where God's getting ready to judge the world for the sin of the ages. And right before that happens, something needs to happen. From my perspective, it's the rapture. And also, it's the sealing of the 144,000 Jews. And so chapter seven, before you get into these trumpet judgments that are gonna come, God seals two groups, basically. He takes the one group up to heaven, and so in the end of Revelation seven, you read about a multitude of people in heaven that appear from every tribe and tongue and nation. They just appear before the throne of God. Who are those people? I think it's the rapture. You also, though, have the sealing of 144,000 Jewish people who get a mark on their forehead that's gonna protect them from the judgments that are about to come. Now, we get into, then, the wrath of God being poured out through these trumpet judgments in chapters eight and nine. What were these judgments? Well, a third of heaven will be burned up, it says. A third of the oceans and rivers will be destroyed. We talked about these things the last couple weeks. The sun, moon, and stars will be darkened a third of the time. And demonic beings will be released from the abyss and they'll torment people for five months. These are the first six trumpets. What's interesting, by the way, this past week, just in my devotional time, I'm reading through the book of Joel. And Joel the prophet describes these same creatures. I, I never knew that before. Uh, I'm hoping in the fall to line them up so you see exactly, but Joel wrote about these, he describes them as kind of people, but he describes them as people that are unlike any people who have ever come before or will ever be seen again, these creatures that have a face of a, a man, or I forget all the descriptions of them, but Joel describes these creatures talks about the fact that fire comes out of their mouths, which is exactly what we read about in the book of Revelation, and you realize, wow, that was, that was all predicted in the Old Testament. And it just lines up. Now, what I'd like to do eventually is line up all these references from the old and the new by subjects so that you can see how they all describe what happens in each of those different categories. But those were the first six judgments but we know there are seven judgments. Seven's the divine number, seven is the number of completion. What happens with the seventh trumpet? Well, that unleashes the seven bowl judgments, and this is where things get really, really bad. And now we come to chapter 10, we'll begin reading about some of this. Now, before you get into those, there's another pause. And it seems like chapter 10 and chapter 11 focuses a little bit on the protection of the Jewish nation. There's some hints about that in uh, Revelation 10 and 11. So with that in mind, let's begin Revelation 10, beginning in verse one. He writes, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow, or it could be translated a halo, but rainbow is probably the right word there, over his head. And so you have this angel 
that comes down from heaven. It says he's surrounded by a cloud. He's got this, this rainbow over his head. Well, what does a rainbow remind you of? It reminds you of a protection, right? I mean, God said, I'll never again judge the world with a flood. And, and so I believe this is a picture of the fact that God is again getting ready to protect the Jewish nation from what's about to happen. They, they are giving this promise that this is not going to apply to you, this judgment that is coming. The next verse, it says his face, or the rest of this, his face was like the sun, his legs were like fiery pillars, and he had a little scroll opened in his hand. Now the question is, who is this angel? And there's debate about this. This could be Gabriel or one of, you know, Michael or Gabriel from the Old Testament, a mighty angel, or else I've mentioned before that the word angel means messenger. And the description of this particular angel that John is seeing at this point, at the beginning of the seven trumpets, this particular angel is a description that fits Christ and God in Revelation 1 and 4. There are just certain descriptions that are being used here. And so it could likely represent that Christ is getting ready to come to the earth. He's getting ready to, to unleash the final judgments. Look at this description of him. His face is like the sun, which was described like Christ. His legs were like fiery pillars. Do you remember where else in the Bible that you read about fiery pillars? Anyone remember where else you read about fiery pillars or a fiery pillar? What's that? Moses, yes, yes. And so I think there's a connection there. And by the way, this is what you should be doing as you're reading Revelation. You're looking for things that connect with Genesis and Exodus because we're looking at the fulfillment of all things here. And so you remember that the people of Israel were led by a fire at night, a pillar of fire specifically, and um, a cloud, a pillar of a, of a cloud during the daytime. But again, this is, I think, related specifically at this point to the nation of Israel. This description is intended to show God's leadership of the nation of Israel before he gets ready to judge the world. And he has a little scroll in his hand. Now, this is not, I don't believe, the same scroll we read about earlier. Or Jesus, you remember, he unrolled one seal after another. This one is called a little scroll. It's actually even a different Greek word for the word scroll. And he's getting ready to open up the scroll. Now, do you remember from the scrolls before that the opening of a scroll represents the unleashing of a judgment? And there are gonna be some judgments that are going to be unleashed. We continue in verse three. We read, he put his foot on the sea, his left on the land. Yeah, it should be his right foot. Yeah, right foot on the sea, his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders spoke with their voices. So again, something's getting ready to happen. And Jesus is being, I think Jesus here is being depicted as someone who's ruling over the whole world, over the land and over the sea. And he's getting ready to unleash these final judgments that are, are coming. And part of the reason I think this is the case is even this illustration or the reference to the fact that he's called a lion, a roaring lion. There was a prophecy all the way back in Genesis related to Jesus coming from the family line of Judah and being described as a lion. In fact, we sing the song, he's the lion and the lamb. This comes all the way from the Old Testament and it's fulfilled in the book of Revelation. 
It's found in Genesis 49, 9 and 10, where we read, Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes. This was a prophecy that was made to one of the 12 children of the man, Israel. And so before he died, he prophesied over each of his sons. And when he came to Judah, he made this prophecy that the scepter will not, never be removed from, from this tribe, this family line. And of course, Jesus is this. And so when we read here about this person, this sent one, this angel, this messenger, who's standing on the sea and on the earth and his face is like the sun and he's got the roar of a lion. This is why I'm telling you that from my perspective, it, it fits a little bit more that we're talking about Jesus. And then his appearance here is very significant because he's getting ready again to unleash judgment and to rule on the earth. We know that we're at the, near the end of this seven-year period. It also describes that there's thunder and lightning. And what does, of course, thunder do to you? I mean, when you hear thunder, it's, it's a sign that judgment is coming. And that's what I think we're reading about here. In verse four, it says, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Why would God do something like this? So these seven thunders, uh, speak, it says, and of course, thunder, again, is a sign that a storm is coming. And they say something, but John is told, don't write it down. Well, it shows me that there's some stuff that's going to happen that, that God has just not revealed to us. It's considered a, a biblical mystery it's that God's going to undo something. What's interesting to me about this is in the book of Daniel, God told Daniel the same thing. He said, seal this up until the end. Daniel didn't know what it meant, and God said, it's not for you to know. So some things are gonna happen toward the end, and as much as we look at this and we say, this sounds horrible, it's a demonstration that there's some more to come, more judgment to come on the world. Verse five, then the angel, and again, I think that means sent one or messenger, and it could be Jesus, it could get, again, be just a mighty angel, then the angel that I'd seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore an oath by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be an interval of time. He's swearing. So what's he doing here? Of course, God takes oaths. Even in the Bible, it talks about how God swore by himself uh, some people, by the way, think that this can't be Jesus because he's swearing by the one who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all this. But again, God the Father was part of that as well. But he's getting ready to, to swear this oath to say it's, it's coming and there's no longer any delay. So some of these other things that happened seem to have unfolded over a period of time, sometimes months. They, they might have, they've happened in succession, but they've overlapped. They've, they've happened over a period of time, but when you get to what's coming next, we're really at the end here, and God is swearing this is it. It's, it's gonna happen right now. Um, now, this is all taking place 
right before the blowing of a trumpet. And this in my mind again takes us back to Daniel and it's kind of why we came here in the first place because Daniel was by the Tigris River and a trumpet sounded and he began to have some of these visions that we're talking about. And there was an oath that took place in the Old Testament as well in the book of Daniel and it begins to tie it all together. In Daniel 12, six through 10, we're actually beginning in verse one here. I'm sorry, this is, um, this should be Matthew. No, it is Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. We read this, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since the nations came into being until that time. Of course, that's what Jesus said. He said, after these wars and rumors of wars and some of these things, there's gonna be this time of distress or desolation. Remember, Daniel describes this abomination that causes desolation or distress. Jesus said the exact same thing. Daniel's saying it in the Old Testament. After these things happen, a time of distress. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. Now, let me stop for a moment about that. What is this describing? What is Daniel describing here? Well, he's saying that there's some people who died that are gonna rise up at this time to eternal life. Now, I wanna suggest here that what Daniel's talking about at this point in this timeline is the rapture. He's describing the point that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, how we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We're gonna be caught up together to be with the Lord. It's gonna happen in a moment. We're gonna be given a new body. And so when we are taken up to heaven in this event called the rapture, we're gonna get this new body. We're gonna be living with Christ forever. But then it describes a second group here, and it talks about some that are gonna be raised to shame and eternal contempt. Now, in Revelation, we read that that takes place at the end. The eternal judgment, when people are gonna end up in this eternal place called hell, takes place after the millennial reign. And so again, laying out the timeline, you got the seven-year period, in, sometime during that, Christ is coming back for us, we're raptured, and then he comes to reign on the earth after all these judgments, and he reigns for a full thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, there's a final judgment. And what we read about in the book of Revelation is that those who have been in Hades during this time are gonna be actually poured into, it says Hades is gonna be poured into hell at this time. It's gonna be the final judgment. And so Daniel talked about both of these. Sometimes people think in the Old Testament there's no reference to an eternal life or anything like that. But this is an example, a reference where it talks about eternal life and, and um, how did it describe it here? Wait, eternal life and then some to eternal shame and contempt. And that's the place called hell that Daniel was writing about and he's on the same timeline that we are here in the book of Revelation. Verse three in Daniel 12 those who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's a great time to be sharing your faith during this time. Those who lead many to faith and righteousness, it says, will shine like the stars. I don't know what that's gonna look like. 
It suggests to me, though, that we're gonna have a certain glory that's just absolutely wonderful. That during this time, those who lead many to righteousness and to faith in Christ are gonna receive this, this glorious resurrection of sorts. Verse four, then, but you, Daniel, keep these words secret, which is what I referred to earlier. Keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Don't let it out what's gonna happen. Well, didn't God just tell John the same thing? He said, seal it up. John heard some things. He was told, don't write it down. This is not for you to know right now. It's gonna be revealed in its time. Daniel was told exactly the same thing. In other words, don't worry about it. There's some things you're not gonna know. So just relax, it's all fine. Verse four, again, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. Some think, by the way, that means knowledge, knowledge, which is pretty remarkable if you think that, that if that's what it means, that knowledge will increase, because what's happened in our day and age if, if it's not that knowledge has increased? Do you realize that for 6,000 years of human history, for almost all 6,000 of it, I'd say, let's say 5,800 of the 6,000 years, life has been as it's always been. People were still tilling the ground the same way. They were using fire for lights. Something has happened in the last 150 years and now they say knowledge is multiplying at an incredible rate. Now I believe that knowledge is gonna increase to the point that it's gonna be like it was in the times of Babel. Remember they were building this Tower of Babel and they said we wanna make a name for ourselves and they were constructing this this entire life separate from God. That's where I think we're headed. It's a repeat of the Tower of Babel. That's knowledge is increasing. Others think, by the way, knowledge will increase has to do more with that we'll, we'll, we'll get it. In other words, the prophecy will be unfolded more and more, which is true. I think as we get closer to the event, it's gonna become more obvious to us. I don't think we'll be debating some of these things especially if we see that seven-year agreement. Let's, uh, let's not talk about a pre-trib rapture anymore. I think we're gonna know at that point. Um, so verse uh, five then, I, Daniel, looked and two others were standing there, one on this bank of the river and one on the other. Of course, we have the same idea. This is why I think perhaps, I don't know, I haven't read this, but you know, it said how My Michael, he saw Michael standing there. And now we read about these other angels with their feet in the water. It sounds a little bit like the Revelation scene, a very similar thing, so it could be the archangel. Then I looked, I, Daniel, looked, and two others were standing there, one on this bank of the river and one on the other. One of them said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, which might be Jesus, how long until the end of these extraordinary things? Then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river. He raised both his hand towards, hands towards heaven and swore by him who lives eternally. Now, what does that remind you of? Well, it's just what we just read. And so now we're in Daniel here and it describes this, this angelic being or it may be Jesus above the waters who takes another oath. And he says, I swear to you by the one who lives eternally. Now, in Revelation, it was a little different. I swear by the one who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it, but it's, I think it's the same thing we're reading about in Daniel 12 and what we're reading about in Revelation 10, the same scene there. 
He swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Well, we're talking about three and a half years here. Again, I don't know that I'd take the time to develop that, but times, which is time plus time, times, two of them, a time, one, and a half a time, three and a half years. And so Daniel's describing this event, this person, something that's gonna happen beginning in the middle of that three and a half year period, which is when all this stuff begins to get unleashed when the Antichrist begins to pursue the Jews and the Christians, and then sometime after that happens, these judgments begin to take place. By the way, these, this timeline, the three and a half years, let me give you a couple other uh, references. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse two, uh, describes it as 42 months, which is again three and a half years, and Revelation 12, 14 also talks about the same time limit and things that are gonna happen. Continuing reading, it says, when the power of the holy people is shattered, all these things will be completed. This is describing the Antichrist living in Jerusalem for the last, that three and a half year period where they're being, remember Jesus said, when you hear about the abomination that causes desolation in the temple, this is a model, by the way, of in the Old Testament when Antiochus, I think, was, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but a ruler came in Israel in the Old Testament, made an agreement with Israel, broke the agreement in the middle, went to the temple and sacrificed a pig, and then launched a persecution against the Jewish nation. And this Old Testament person who did that is foreshadowing what's gonna happen in the, the last days, the same exact type of thing. And so Daniel prophesied someone's gonna come in, they're gonna go in the temple, they're gonna desecrate the temple, a mass persecution's gonna take place against the Jewish nation, and for three and a half years, he's gonna rule from, physically from Jerusalem. Goes on to say, when the power of the holy people shattered, all these things will be completed. I heard but did not understand, so I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? He said, go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret, which again, like John. And they're sealed up until the time of the end. Now, this is the part that gets maybe a little bit scary from the book of Daniel. In verse 10, it says here, many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but the wise will understand. There's gonna be a refining that's gonna take place among believers. They're, they're gonna be purified. It's gonna be a difficult time. Purified, cleansed, refined, kind of like uh, gold in the fire. And it describes the fact that the wicked are just gonna get more wicked and none of them are going to understand, but this prophecy says we will. Believers will, or whoever's around at this time will understand. And by the way, I don't think we're talking about the Jewish nation here. I don't believe the Jewish nation gets it until right toward the end, maybe even at the point when Jesus appears in the clouds. They don't understand. They don't realize that their Messiah has come, but I think we'll get it. Verse 11, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there's that Antichrist again, in the temple, he uh, abolishes the sacrifice. There will be 1,290 days the one who waits and reaches the 1335 days is blessed. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, then rise to your destiny at the end 
of the days. And so he's describing a scene that at 1290 days, he's going to abolish the sacrifice, or at least it'll be abolished for the last half of this period of time. And then it looks like there's a little bit of period of time and then Christ comes back. That's the difference between the 1290 and the, the 1335. It seems like that's 45 days before the final end. But this is, again, exactly what I think is gonna happen in the end times. The Antichrist is gonna set up, he's gonna make this agreement with, with Israel. They're gonna think he's, this is great. In Thessalonians, we read people will be saying, peace, peace. They're gonna be celebrating. I mean, when this happens, when this agreement takes place, you're gonna see celebrations in Israel that have never happened before. I, talk, I mean, they're gonna be like parties going on in Jerusalem. They're gonna be so happy. They're gonna be finally saying, peace, peace. And for a while, it's gonna look like it, but then this Antichrist is gonna break the agreement, defile the temple, cease or cut off the sacrifice. And then we know at 1290 days later, something happens or Christ is gonna come back at the end of that time. Now, Daniel talked about this hidden plan, and that's the, the Greek word or Greek idea of a mystery. Uh, the word mystery is used in the Bible several times. It's not used the way we use mystery. Like you watch a mystery on TV, you wonder what's gonna happen. The word mystery in the Bible means something that's unfolded that was hidden in the past. And this thing is going to be revealed. This mystery is eventually gonna be revealed. Now, that's Daniel. Let's come back to Revelation chapter 10 and kind of wrap this up, uh, beginning in verse eight, and then I'll open up for question. It says, now the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the scroll. He said to me, take and eat it, it will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach turned bitter, and I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. In the Bible, the eating of a scroll was a reference to, in other places, the idea of basically devouring the prophecy that you're going to be sharing. In other words, they'd eat the scroll, it becomes the message, becomes part of you, and you're about to deliver this message. So John is saying that, or at least what's being told to John is that the eating of it's gonna taste good, but it's gonna end up being bitter in the stomach. Now, what, what, is, this, what is this? Well, it's about what's about to happen. It's about these, these seven bowl judgments that are coming. You say, well, why would they ever be sweet to the taste? Well, to the righteous, judgment actually is sweet. This idea that, that we don't, you know, as Christians, we don't want revenge, but we do want justice. There's just something about when justice is finally served. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we read about these people who have been martyred and they're under the throne of God and they keep asking God, when is this gonna happen? When is this gonna happen? And then you get to this chapter and perhaps Jesus raises his hand and he says, there's no longer any delay. And then he hands John the scroll from which he's gonna prophesy the rest of the book. And when he tastes it, he says, you know, this is right. This is good, but it's bitter. It, it's it, it's the, like the worst thing that could happen is what's going to happen next. So that'll bring us to Revelation chapter 11. And again, I apologize for the math in it because it's kind of hard to follow this timeline, but 
I think it's very, very specific. I have a commentary that, again, has Jesus coming at the right moment, the right time, on the exact right day that was prophesied to Daniel, and we know Jesus is coming back again after that seven-year period in a similar sense. So with that in mind, let's open it up for questions. I usually go about 45 minutes and then um, ask people any questions about this. Next week will be a little clearer, I think, than this one. I feel a little apologetic that it's not as clear as I'd like it to be, so. And they would all both be in the back here. Well, you got there first, so there we are. Hi, um, so are you suggesting that the rapture includes the unsaved too? No. I mean, not into heaven, but to eternal separation from God no. or Hades or hell or however you want to say I, it. No, I think, um, no, there's just a gap between what Daniel wrote about. Daniel described a scene where some were resurrected to life and others were resurrected to eternal judgment. And it looks like it all happens at the same time, but there are a lot of prophecies in the Bible that in the very same sentence, it's two parts of a prophecy. One happens here, one happens here. We know from the book of Revelation that the unrighteous will be judged at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. So what's going to happen in the meantime is Christians will be raptured, will be taken up to heaven. The Jewish nation, the 144,000, will be protected so that they can reign with Christ. And everyone that dies, that didn't know Christ, wasn't Jewish, everyone that got the mark on their forehead will go to Hades, they're the place of the dead. And they'll be, they'll be held there in this place, which uh, I think it's Luke t- uh, 17 that describes this place of Sheol that has a place of suffering plus a place called paradise. And uh, that's where they are. And then in the end, toward the end of Revelation, it says Hades was, was dumped into hell and that's the, that's the second death, that's the eternal judgment. On the controversy of the angel, would Jesus had been subservient to John by handing him the book, as it says in the Bible, when John ate the book? He could be. I mean, I'm just, that's the point of Well, I mean, Jesus is the greatest servant of all. So um, that, that could be. Some suggest that that had to be an angel because... It, this is a debate whether it is or not. Uh, the, the, again, the reasons I think it probably was Jesus is because, first of all, the description that's given is just too great. His face was like the sun, his legs like these pillars of fire. And some of those words, those descriptions are used in both Revelation 1 and Revelation 4 to describe God the Father and Jesus. But it could be an angel. I'm not sure it would matter which one it is. And the Daniel passage would point to the idea it's probably Gabriel because he's the angel that's depicted there in the Old Testament and he's supposed to be the protector of Israel. So, okay, the one back here was next. Yeah. Yeah, it's out of Daniel when you were talking about the 1,290 days. Yeah. 1,335. Yeah. Okay, if I understood right, the 1290 was like the mid-year, the three and a half year. But what is the 1335 days? I think the 1335 is when Jesus actually comes and defeats the enemy and comes to reign. I think the 1335 is when his feet are planted on the Mount of Olives and it's the end. Now, it doesn't say what it is. 
But to me, this suggests that there's a gap there of a certain period of time. Maybe it's even a gap for people to, to get saved if there's any left that didn't get the mark. I don't know. But it does seem like there's a gap between when the Antichrist is ruling and when Jesus actually starts his rule of 45 days. Why there'd be a gap, I don't know. I don't think the battle, I think, is going to be instant. So maybe it's even a matter of it takes a certain amount of time to bury the dead, I mean, to clean up. So, so who's next here? Okay, over there, yeah. When you were talking about uh, the, the Antichrist ruling in Jerusalem, yeah. desecrating the temple, yeah. what is your opinion about the temple oh, yeah. not really being there right now? Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's a good question. I actually meant to say something about that. Um, I think that the temple has to be rebuilt to, in some form. Uh, at the very least, we know that the sacrificial system will be started up again. Now, I've been told if Israel started sacrificing animals, it would lead to war in the Middle East. It, it just would be a big deal. I think they're, they're gathering materials, though, to build the temple now. And uh, also that they're training priests and they're also breeding uh, the heifer, the red heifer that's required to um, anoint the high priest. All this is happening now and there's a school in Israel that's training people on all the, the laws of the Old Testament. My thought is that this Antichrist, the agreement, the nature of the agreement is probably gonna let Israel rebuild. Now, uh, uh, speculation but what if that's the thing that would cause all the great celebration? That we're gonna allow you now to re rebuild this and start sacrificing animals. You'd think, well, peace, peace, finally. They're letting us be a people. But it's a, it's a setup. So, okay, and yeah. After the rapture, will there be people who turn to Christ that are not part of the 144,000? I think so. But to me, again, the key is this, you can't get the mark. That's what's real definitive in the book of Revelation. If you get the mark on your hand or forehead, it's real clear that you will end up in hell. You've aligned yourself with the Antichrist and not the Christ. And, and there's no turning back, there's no erasing that. So, and there are verses that indicate that people are being uh, actually given over to their deceit because they didn't love the truth. And I think that's what's gonna happen. People are gonna be given over to their deceit and so they'll be beyond redemption because they'll, have, they'll be unable at that point to believe. But I do think you'll have groups of people. I, I hate to put it this way, but I get this image of these people that are like militias that are hiding out in, in these buried places, you know, and, and they know that there's this evil world out there and this government out there, and I'm imagining that some of them are going to say, I'm not going to get any mark on my hand or forehead, and some of them could be saved. They could be spared, but you can't buy or sell without the mark, and so that's going to be a pretty defining thing, so, okay, oh yeah. Can you say a little more about why you think a week in Daniel actually represents seven years? Well, a week, of course, is seven days long. And the events that are described in Daniel did not happen and could not happen in seven days. And so um, it's pretty universally believed. I mean, all, all the sources I have all agree that he was not describing 
literal days or literal weeks that he was describing, indeed years. And again, some have calculated the math that it predicted exactly when Jesus would come. And, and this is a little speculation on my part, but you remember the Magi came from Babylon and they were likely familiar with the writings of Daniel because he lived there. And I think that they put it together. Where is he who's to be born king of the Jews? They knew. The Jewish nation didn't know, but they knew. They did the math. They saw it. Daniel, of course, knew that after 70 years, Jeremiah had prophesied that the Israelites would be allowed to return back to, the, to Jerusalem. So he knew that. I think they figured it out. Because otherwise, you know, you wonder why these guys travel for seven, eight months to bow before this one that they knew was the king of the Jews. I think they had access to Daniel's writings. I think they did the math, they figured it out, they came and they bowed before the king of kings. I think that's what happened from the, that story. So, okay, over here. Hi. Hi. Um, when I was younger, the tribulation books were really popular. Oh, yeah. Like, and um, we went to a church where it was a pre-trib rapture. Yeah. And I remember our pastor at that time saying that one of the reasons those books were incorrect was because he said that people who heard the gospel before the rapture could not be saved. And I was just wondering your opinion on that. Yeah, I disagree with that. Uh, in a lot of those books, like the, the Thief in the Night movies, which I watched, and, and they were, I think they were powerful. Um, my dad let me show, I think I might have said this before, but I let my dad, I asked my dad if we could show a Thief in the Night at our church. He said if I could guarantee that 50 kids would show up, uh, he let me show it, and then he said I had to run the event. And I was like 16, maybe, 15. I invited my friends to come, and th come to this, and I think seven of them that night put their faith in Christ. I mean, it changed our whole neighborhood. And then after that, one after another, more of them came. There were a dozen of the kids in my neighborhood that all came to faith in Christ. So I think that's very, very powerful. But here's why they say that. They're making the assumption that the Holy Spirit lives inside of Christians only. And so if in a pre-trib world, Christians go up to heaven, so does the Holy Spirit. And because it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin and, and lead them to faith in Christ, and the Spirit's gone, no one can be saved during that seven-year period. As we'll see next week, it's, it's not correct. I mean, God set up these two witnesses in Jerusalem to see people saved, and Jesus himself said, the end will not come until the gospel's preached to the whole world. So I think there's an opportunity, but the reason people say it is they say the rapture's pre-trib, and the Holy Spirit is in believers only, and believers go up to heaven, so there's no Holy Spirit here, so no one can get saved. There are a lot of assumptions in that argument. I'm saying they're just, God is here, the Spirit is here even if we're gone. Why are we thinking that just because we're gone, the Holy Spirit ceases to be God all over? He's still working, he's still working. Otherwise, you would not send, again, next week, chapter 11 talks about the two witnesses. You wouldn't have witnesses because nobody could get saved. The Spirit of God is gonna be working to the end. He's trying to save as many as possible. So, but that's the reason they do that. They've made an assumption that I don't agree with, so. Okay, any others? Right here, Tim. Okay. I have a question about um, Matthew 24. Um, 
It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, yeah. the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, yeah. and the celestial powers will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That sounds like the rapture with all the people mourning on earth. Like it sounds like it's at the end. It's, the my perspective, that is not the rapture. That's the Jews from all over the world being gathered for the millennial kingdom. That's the timing of that based on even where we are in the book of Revelation. They've been sealed Wherever they are, I think God is gonna gather them from wherever they are, the, the Jewish people that are gonna form the, the nation. And so I think the elect are not Christians. I think, they're, um, I think they're Jewish people. I mean, there's a possibility, and some have pointed to that to say, of course, that'd be a, what's called a post-trib perspective, which is really scary. <laughs> Because that means you see the sun darkening and the moon and everything else. I think we're gone for all of that. But that would, that would, um, that time, Jesus' timing matches Revelation perfectly. He talks about the, you know, the wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and the, the false prophets and all of that. And then all of a sudden he talks about the sun being darkened and the stars falling. We read about all that last week. Those are all signs in the heavens that Christ is coming back. We read about the sealing of the, the Jewish nation and, and the rapture of the church. Christ is now getting ready to come down and he's gonna gather to himself his people who have been scattered, but mostly, I think, in Petra. So I think the elect are, are, are Jews. All right, it just sounds like then it's two comings when it's one coming. Well, I mentioned last week that the, the, coming, the, the coming of Christ is an event it's, not, it's a um, period of time and not just an event. And so when we think of Jesus coming back, we think of a point in time. But the Greek word that's used for the coming of Christ is, is refers to a period of time. I mean, they're both are there, but I, I gave the example of grandma's coming. If you say grandma's coming, are you talking about the moment she arrives or are you talking about the fact she's gonna be staying with us? You know, the one is a period of time, the other is a moment of time. Both are talked about in Scripture. I think the rapture is a moment, and it's part of the coming of the Lord. The second coming includes the rapture, but it's this period of time that culminates with Jesus physically coming back to the earth and ruling. And so that's, an, that's a period of time. It's not just an event. Okay, maybe one last question. Did that answer it? Is that? Or maybe there aren't any other ones. All right, why don't we close in prayer? Uh, Father, again, we ask you to give us uh, more and more understanding about these things. We, we wrestle with it, Lord, but we, we really wanna honor this as your word and um, grab a hold of it and, and believe in you and what you say is gonna happen, and we do wanna be ready in every way. And we do wanna be ones, O oh Lord, too, that are faithful in, in reaching people for Christ so that they know you, and once again, whose lives match up with uh, what it means to be waiting for your return. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.